Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Wednesday, September 8th, and we're bringing healthcare to Industry Focus. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined by Fool.com's head humdrum hero of healthy heart heartiness, Brian Feroldi. Brian, how you doing? Dylan, doing great. I feel like it's been a couple of weeks since we've chatted. It's good to be back in action. <laughs> I know. I had to tape a show with Jason last week. I mean, don't get me wrong, loved it, but uh, <laughs> I was I didn't get an alliterative tongue twister to kick the show off. You know, that's a Brian Feroldi original. Seems like a missed opportunity on Jason's part. <laughs> yeah, he could have had a chance to mess with me. Um, and 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 Brian, I will say, I I think you messed with me a little bit beyond just the alliterative tongue twister to kick this show off. Uh, the company we're going to be talking about today is definitely outside of my usual coverage zone. I had to learn a lot of very complicated multisyllabic words in preparation for this show. This is a healthcare company that we're going to be talking about, but it's a healthcare company that's really a tech company. Those are two of my favorite industries to study. So when I came across this company, I said, we got to talk about this on Industry Focus. So this is a uh, SPAC that is going to be available soon. There's a little bit of complicated nature to this because it's a SPAC that deal's been announced. It hasn't fully closed yet. Uh, so currently called Longview Acquisition Corp. 2. The ticker is LGV. Uh, but Brian, that is not the name of the company that we're talking about. Like uh, most SPACs, this company raised money as a blank check company. It did not have a target uh, yet announced. Uh, a few uh, weeks ago, Longview announced that it was acquiring a private company called HeartFlow. So the ticker symbol right now is LGV. You can become a shareholder, a potential shareholder of this business. If the deal closes on time, the deal is expected to close in the fourth quarter of this year. The ticker will change to HFLO, HeartFlow. And... Uh as the name might imply, Brian, HeartFlow is a business focused on the cardiovascular system. <laughs> I love it when it's nice and obvious like that. Yes, this is a company that is focused on uh, heart care. Yeah, and, and this is not the first time that Longview has stepped into the healthcare space. Uh, as, as the name might imply with uh, this being their second SPAC, uh, their second corp, uh, they had a previous SPAC. Uh, they brought public Butterfly Network. And Brian, you actually did a rundown on that, uh, I believe, with Emily back in December for an industry focus episode. Yeah, a fascinating company focused on handheld and portable ultrasound system. That SPAC did go through, so Butterfly is now a publicly traded company. As you'd expect of a high-growth, high-valuation company, the stock has been all over the map, up and down. Something tells me we're going to see a similar result with HeartFlow. I think that's the case. And and why don't we just start out here? You know, we're, we're talking about a SPAC. We're in the healthcare industry. Uh, in general, when you're talking about the SPAC space, a big part of the benefit of this style of coming public is that you are able to be far more forward in the way that you look and talk about your business. We're going to be getting into that. Basically, this is a small company now tackling a very big problem. And if you start scoping out what that problem looks like in terms of dollars and the number of people that are affected by cardiovascular issues, uh, it gets big fast. It certainly does. Cardiovascular disease is the number one cause of death in the U.S. and globally, accounting for one out of every three deaths. In fact, more than one 
billion humans are currently at moderate or high risk for developing cardiovascular disease. When the numbers are that big, the spending is enormous. Uh, the company says that one out of every $6 that is spent in the United States on healthcare is spent on cardiovascular care. So the opportunity and market here is just massive. And I am thankfully not in a position where I've had to have a lot of medical care or attention uh, related to my heart, but I'm sure there are a lot of people listening that have, and they are probably somewhat familiar with the way that we try to assess risk for this right now. Um, it's the kind of stuff that happens at your physical, the stuff, the the vitals that your doctor's taking. Um, and, and often, if there are any problems, you start getting into uh, some stress tests and things like that that are non-invasive. That's kind of the current way that we approach this problem. Yes. Uh, cardiovascular disease, like we said, is an absolutely huge problem. And I think most people are familiar with uh, getting their blood pressure test, getting their body mass index weighed at their initial risk assessment. <laughs> if during that assessment, they determine that there might be some, something going on, uh, they are then sent in for a more advanced uh, scan. They might be on a treadmill where they get a, an ECG test. They might have a stress echocardiogram uh, test. They might get a, a PET scan. And the sad thing is, even with that current diagnostic method, uh, the current way that we diagnose heart disease, coronary heart disease, is just inadequate. 55% uh, of the time, uh, the patient gets a false positive. That's basically when they're sent in for a, a test that uh, is a semi-invasive test and they don't have the disease. And then on the flip side, 20 to 30%, there's a false negative where nothing is detected, but they have an underlying problem. Now, there's a relatively new emerging technology uh, called coronary, uh, coronary computer tomography angiogram, or a coronary CTA, that is helping to fix this. It's basically high-quality imaging uh, of the heart, but that's only used in less than 5% of uh, patients that are screened for heart disease. HeartFlow is, um, is, is, is a software company that is helping to make those coronary CTA scans, which are used in a minority of cases, even better. Yeah, I think as is often the case with med tech companies, Brian, it is helpful to go to the company YouTube page and watch them explain how this works. It, it puts visuals to this in a way that we simply can't in this audio format. But to kind of walk through the process here, a patient gets this CTA that, that you mentioned before, it's imaging work. And if there are any potential issues that are present in that imaging work, the imaging gets sent to HeartFlow. What they then do is build out more sophisticated modeling for the heart and the arteries. And what they're generally looking for is, is there narrowing happening in those arteries? And is that narrowing affecting blood flow in a way that is going to affect function? And they do it in a variety of ways. Um, the one that is most incredible to me is by measuring the laws of fluid dynamics. Uh, it's a very engineering-oriented way to do this, and I think this is where the special sauce for this company comes in. Yeah, the output of a coronary CTA, CTA scan, which again are currently used, they're used in a minority of cases, but they are used, is good, but it's still inadequate. Physicians still don't have access to the data that they really need to make uh, diagnostic uh, decisions. There's still false positives and false negatives on this coronary CTA. What HeartFlow is offering is the ability to take those CTA scans, upload them to HeartFlow's cloud. It then uses AI 
and sophisticated modeling that have been developed over more than 11 years and have been used to make by, by looking at um, millions of, uh, of images to produce a highly detailed interactive 3D view of the patient's heart. And right in that view, it can call out troubling spots. And it basically arms the physicians with a much more detailed view that they can then use to make diagnostic decisions. Yeah, and to see it in action is cool. You wind up with this color-coded look at someone's cardio- cardiovascular system, and um, it, it makes sense far more for me when I look at it. Um, for, for all of our folks with advanced medical degrees, we're talking about stenosis here. That's generally what we're looking at uh, when it comes to the narrowing of these arteries. Um, and, and it seems to me like a very sophisticated way that preserves the non-invasive element of what we're doing here. And, and Brian, non-invasive is important because uh, you can introduce a host of other problems when you start going into invasive treatment. Yeah, these are non-invasive treatments. And uh, historically, once a, a, a non-invasive test identifies that there could be a problem, they are then sent over to a far more invasive uh, coronary angiogram procedure to confirm the diagnostics. What HeartFlow's technology promises to do is by producing that highly viewed 3D model, it promises to greatly increase accuracy. And importantly, it actually has data to prove that this actually works. This isn't just theoretical. The company's says that when it's when heartfulness technology is used, there's an 83% reduction in unnecessary coronary angiogram procedures. There's a 50x, 50x reduction in the amount of undetected diseases. Actual diseases are identified 2x more percent of the time, and there's a 40% reduction in repeat testing. The company estimates that if everybody was using, if everybody that had Medicare and Medicaid was using this test, there would be a cost savings annually of $2.7 billion. So Brian, to put a bow on what it is and how it works, basically imaging gets sent to them. They return something that is a far more sophisticated model that helps healthcare professionals create treatment plans and next steps for patients. That's exactly right. They are a software company that helps to aid in the diagnostics of heart disease. Yeah. And and you say it in the next part of our outline, I think it's worth emphasizing, this is not an experimental technology. This is currently commercially available, commercially available and on the market in the United States, in the United Kingdom, in Canada, in Europe, and even in Japan. This is, again, not new technology. It's actually been researched privately for more than 11 years. There are more than 425 peer-reviewed publications on this technology, and it's reimbursable. 96% of commercial payers are on board and paying for this, and that includes Medicare. What's more, in the United States, 80% of the top 50, 50 heart hospitals are currently using this technology. Yeah, and that's killer social proof. I mean, that, that's exactly what you're looking for when, when you're someone like me coming into this zone and not knowing a ton. You want to see that there is systemic support for, for this type of treatment, or rather this type of diagnostic tool, uh, because ultimately, if, if the insurers are not going to support it, it it's just not going to get used nearly as much um, as the existing options out there. And when you think through if this technology this technology works, uh, who wins here? Really, everybody. Everybody wins. Uh, the patients win because they get a more accurate uh, diagnostics. Uh, the doctors win because they get more they more high quality data. Uh, the patient uh, the uh, the providers definitely win if there can be a huge cost reduction in unnecessary procedures. So I love it when everybody that's involved in healthcare has a win, and this technology does promise that. 
So Brian, you have been very specifically calling this a tech company that operates in the healthcare space. Uh, I don't think there's going to be any surprise with the business model here based on that description. Wait for it. <laughs> it's SaaS, yep. software as a service. But importantly, uh, it's not just any type of SaaS. Uh, there are two components to the SaaS model. There is a recurring uh, subscription fee uh, that is paid to just access uh, the platform and the company earns a fee every time an analysis is done. So it's actually on both sides of, of, of the SaaS model. Yeah. Um, and while it's a very compelling uh, idea, and while we're, we're saying this is not experimental technology, when it comes to the books, we are in the very early innings. I think you know this is, this is one of those companies where they have what they think, I think, the business model is. In a couple of years, the business model could actually look quite a bit different. Right now, we are looking at very little revenue. Uh, it's 23 million in in 2020 actuals, uh, so a very small base to build off. Um, and and as we'll get to when we talk a little bit about valuation, Brian, um, this is a business I think that's about 2.4 million in enterprise value based on the SPAC deal. So a healthy, healthy valuation there, and a lot of growth expectations built into this business. Yeah, it's a it's a two point four billion dollar enterprise uh, uh, company, and as you said, one downside to a SPAC is we are not given all the same information that we get when we see an an, an S one. So we are missing updated financials on this company. But to your point, they said that in twenty twenty they were estimated to do twenty three million dollars in revenue. There's going to be more in twenty twenty one. Some back of the envelope math suggests that trailing twelve months revenue is somewhere around thirty million dollars. Um, uh, gross margin last year was 33, uh, 33%, um, but it's positive. And they, this, the management team believes that this is going to, both of those figures are going to rapidly improve. As a SPAC, they can make wild production, projections about what their company's revenue is going to look like. And they are basically uh, guiding for compound annual growth in revenue over the next five years of basically 80%. Is that in the realm of possibility? I don't know, but if they can hit that, Today's valuation makes sense. Yeah, the uh, the charts are up and to the right when they're looking at their 2021 to 2025 plan. And just to put some quick numbers to it, so you can see, I mean, the management team is is putting some big ideas out there and some big numbers out there. Like we said, 23 million in trailing or in, in 2020 actuals uh, by 2023, eyeing over 200 million in expected revenue, over 500 million by 2025. You have to you have to discount that, I think, a little bit, Brian. But but, but I think what's interesting to me is in addition to the massive ramp that they're expecting in revenue, and most SPACs are, they're projecting gross margin expansion and healthy gross margin expansion. Currently 33%, a couple years out looking to get to 69, 78, and then maybe cruising altitude being somewhere in the 80% range. That leaves a lot of cash left over if they're able to hit that at that scale. And this is a software company. So an 80% gross margin on these kind of sales is not outside of the realm of possibility. If there was a hardware component to that, I might be more skeptical. But if they can get to that kind of scale that quickly, I could see margins being that high. Yeah, it makes sense. Like You always want to kind of do a smell test when you're seeing those types of expectations. Like, Would a business model uh, that they're proposing here support this? And I think the answer is yes. And importantly, uh, their balance sheet is going to be in pretty good shape post uh, the SPAC deal closing. They're estimated to have about $400 million in cash. Now, we don't know what their burn rate is, so but they believe that that will be plenty of cash to get them to free cash flow positive. 
In, in fact, one interesting thing about this SPAC deal is that if you buy the SPAC, as of right now, about $91 million is actually going to be returned to Longview shareholders via a special dividend as part of the closing. Now, why the heck would this company return capital to, to, to shareholders? The company actually said that they wanted to minimize dilution. So they are purposely saying, we only want to raise this amount of money and no more because this is all we need. That means that the company's ethos in general is minimize dilution. I like that. That sounds shareholder friendly. Like, you know, th there are always those elements where I'm like, I need to dig a little bit more on this to make sure I'm not missing something. But that sounds super shareholder friendly. And I mean, dilution is a real problem. And it's, it's an easy one to just kind of forget about, but it affects your ownership. Uh, it affects your stake in the business. Now, we didn't get details on how much stock insiders own or anything like that. Again, that's one of the downsides of where this company is in the, in the SPAC process. Hopefully that information comes out soon. But that does show you that insiders are at least thinking like owners. Yeah. I, I think one of the big things that people will, you know, naturally question with this is, okay, uh, this sounds disruptive. Uh, it, it sounds like it has some institutional support within the healthcare industry. Uh, how, how defensible is this technology? Uh, and how defensible is this business, Brian? You know, what, what does the moat look like? Um, we, we talked about kind of the proprietary nature of uh, the modeling that they do and that, that really being what sets this company apart. It is built on a very large intellectual property portfolio. They have 15 million plus uh, images that they've used. Uh, they've been researching this technology for uh, more than a decade. And even beyond that, when you get back to really the early work that started uh, at Stanford, the, the technology is patented. It is already through the, uh, the regulatory uh, processes. It's being reimbursed. When you combine all that together, I think there's a defensible moat. I think so. I mean, 400 plus patents worldwide. And you know, you mentioned the uh, annotated CT images, 15 million plus, uh, over two petabytes of coronary imaging data. Those numbers are expected to double in the next 12 months. I think this is one of those technologies, Brian, like, a lot like driverless cars, where if you are good and you are collecting data, the edge that you have over the competition only increases over time because your systems get better and better. And more importantly, that regulatory part, that to me is one of the reasons why I love looking in the healthcare market because taking an idea and getting it to market often takes years or even in this company's case, uh, nearly a decade. Replicating that for, for another company to come out and replicate that, that would be very, very hard to do. Now on the flip side, this is software. It's not a medical device. There's no physical thing that has to be made. So there you could argue that the barrier to entry for a competitor would be lower. But for right now, I think this company has built itself a moat. One of the benefits that we have, you know, knowing that it's a SPAC and being able to get some some forward-looking elements here, is that we get a decent sense of the roadmap and really where this company wants to be going. And you know, you put all those pieces together, and you can kind of start to understand the the, the growing revenue figures uh, and and what they're targeting because they are looking at rapidly expanding their offerings beyond what's currently approved and been launched with their modeling, um, and really building their TAM over time by adding even more analysis and insights into what they are able to give healthcare providers. Um, we have the benefit of basically knowing, Brian, what the next couple of years look like for this business. Yeah, this company wants to build out a suite of tools that physicians can use to diagnose and track uh, heart disease. They do have some that are on the market uh, already. They have others that have already been cleared 
by regulatory agencies, but have not yet uh, been launched. The company isn't ready uh, as of yet. But right now, they're really in the symptomatic uh, phase of heart care, where basically somebody is clearly showing symptoms and they use this technology to become uh, diagnosed. The company eventually wants them to move into the asymptomatic and preventative care market. If they can do there, the TAM just absolutely explodes. Take any TAM numbers you see with a grain of salt, but they are in the tens of billions of dollars. In other words, to me, if this company doesn't succeed, it's not because the opportunity isn't there. Right. And and just to circle back to that revenue figure we're currently at, 23 million, right, for, for 2020. So uh, even if you take those TAM numbers and cut them in half, there's still healthy room for them to expand um, and, and not even own the majority of that market. If they 5X their current revenue, or at least their revenue in 2020, they will be at 1% of their current TAM. Yeah. It's generally a good sign. <laughs> um, Brian, let's let's run this quickly through uh, a couple of the kind of core uh, checklist items for you, specifically customers and management and culture. What do you see when you dig on those elements of this business? Well, does this company have recurring revenue? The answer there is yes. Is the company selling product that's high margin? The answer there is clearly yes. Is this product going to be recession-proof? One of my favorite things about healthcare. The answer there is yes. And could there be pricing power for this company? I think the answer there is potentially. Uh, whether they have it right now is up for debate, but that checks all those four boxes uh, for me. As for the management team, uh, I love it when founders are still involved with the company, and that is exactly what we have here today. There are three co-founders that are currently still on the board. John Stevens is one of the co-founders, and he is the CEO. Charles uh, Taylor, uh, he is a co-founder, and he is the CTO. Another another co-founder, Christopher Zarnas, uh, he is the, currently the uh, an SVP. And one other thing that's worth noting, on this company's board of directors, the, the chairman of the board is William Weldon. If that name sounds familiar to healthcare investors, that's because he was the CEO of a little tech, uh, little healthcare company called Johnson & Johnson uh, for, for a long time. So this company has an A-list on its uh, leadership team. Yeah. I mean, that's that's pretty stellar. And for three founders to still be in the mix um, is, is pretty awesome. I mean, you, you don't always see that. Um, especially because Brian, this is a you know kind of a technology and uh, and a business that has been slowly built over a very long period of time. The research I think dates back over two decades, um, and and the business has been around for a while. Um, it's just only now coming into the public space, probably because um, you know they're starting to reach that critical mass of um, you know clearance and adoption. Yeah, and uh, importantly to me, it's 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 common. It's more common to see founders still running a company when it's in a tech space. That is far less common in the medical uh, and, and, and healthcare space. So that is really a positive sign in my view. One other quick note is that the executive team on average has been with the company for seven years. As a reminder, uh, this company is just barely over a decade uh, old. So the people that this company has attracted really seem to like it and stick around. Uh, we can't can't tear through a company without talking about some risks and, and talking about what could possibly go wrong, what competition might look like. Um, I think <clears throat> some of the adoption risks are mitigated, Brian, by a lot of what we've talked about already. There's insurer support for this. We already see that some of the top healthcare institutions uh, in the country are, are adopting this as 80% of the top 50 hospitals. Um, I, I think that that really checks a major box for me, where that, that would be a huge concern um, just in this industry in general. But um, it, it's nice to see that that isn't there, as is almost always going to be the case with the SPAC. 
valuation is a big part of what could go wrong. Um, because so much of what we're looking at here with this business and the way it's currently valued hinges on what it will become and not what it currently is. Yeah, again, at that $2.7 billion valuation that's currently trading that today, it's somewhere between 80 and 100 times trailing sales. So while the company is saying, hey, our valuation is very reasonable, look at our comparisons, that is assuming a whole lot of growth uh, in, a, in a very short period of time. So if this company fails to execute or trips up against its stated objectives, uh, even a little bit, uh, the stock could certainly go down. Another thing to just keep in mind is one of the big benefits of this technology is that it reduces medical waste. It reduces the number of unnecessary procedures that are happening. Whenever you see that happening, while that's great news for society, that waste is somebody else's revenue. So they will not look kindly upon this technology being adopted. And it's possible that some doctors even might not like that if all of a sudden they're about to see a major revenue source uh, decline. So things like that, you always have to think through as an investor. That is one of the dangers of being a disruptor, right? Is it, You can have one of the greatest offerings in the world. Uh, and if the uh, invested interests, the status quo interests uh, fight against it. Uh, it doesn't really matter. You know, adoption is going to be a lot harder. But again, I think that the, the, the patients, there's clearly a win here. For the payers, there's clearly a win here. And doctors get more high quality data that they can use to take care of their, of, of their patients. In theory, those three things should overwhelm any potential loss of revenue. But that's the kind of thing that you'll just find out in the numbers. Brian, uh, we mentioned that this deal is expected to close in Q4 of 2021. Um, are you are you a buyer of this? I may take a little position in it just because I've never owned a SPAC before, and this one at least interests me enough. Again, I like that it's already through the FDA. I like that it's already cleared internationally. I like that there's a clear win all, all around, and I like that the company is already gross margin uh, positive. That puts it um, on nice footing. Basically, the thesis here is this small thing that's showing signs of working, the, 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 theme, the theme is we're going to scale this and ramp this up hugely. Uh, while that's risky, that's far less risky than saying, hey, this cool technology, we have to get this through the FDA and then get clearance on stuff. So it's far farther along. So uh, I may, I mean, this is definitely going to be a stock that I'm going to watch. Yeah. I, I think that this has a higher floor than a lot of some of the healthcare stuff that, that typically crosses our desk. And I'll say, you know, I, I haven't made up my mind on it yet, but I learned a ton doing this episode. And I, I think that it's, it's a great reminder, you know, for me, but also I think for our listeners, like, Get outside of your comfort zone every now and then and take a look at something that you don't know very well. Um, you're going to find a lot of similarities with the industries you tend to look at, and you're also going to learn a lot and, and kind of broaden what you do know. So, Brian, thanks for, thanks for putting this one on our radar. Thanks for looking at a hybrid SaaS slash healthcare <laughs> company, Dylan. I appreciate you. Uh, listeners, uh, that's going to do it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you want to reach out and say, hey, shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com or tweet us at mfindustryfocus. If you're looking for more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. Just don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for all his work behind the glass today, and thank you for listening. Until next time, Fool on. Fool on.